Up the airway, not surprisingly, features flying in coastal British Columbia. However, it also emphasizes, like the rest of the books in the Coastal BC Stories series, the people of the region. Uh, getting there is certainly part of the emphasis, but what do you find when you get to some of these locations, especially if it's a remote location, maybe only reachable by air? Another thing that might be a surprise to some readers of Up the Airway is that the book covers other destinations in Canada besides BC. Although that's not the emphasis, certainly uh, any attempt to write about flying in Canada would have to include some of the great destinations in Northwest Territories, Yukon, even Alaska. But the emphasis is on the local area. And um, in fact, one of the chapters is a rather lengthy destination from Powell River to Bella Bella. The maze of waterways stretches below, outward into the mountains to the north. By now, I know a lot about this region. I've studied it on the map for years, but from aloft it looks different. How did boats ever navigate through here without GPS? Without my cockpit nav aids, I'd be totally lost. Even from an aerial perch with an optimum view of the surrounding geography. The patchy clouds below the Piper Arrow deter my efforts to maintain my orientation. Is that Butte Inlet? Stratocumulus cover Stewart Island and Ramsey Arm, making mighty Butte blend into the background of the many fjords. Impressive Butte is rendered into just another inlet. I contact flight service on the en route frequency, announcing my full call sign, including the November prefix, identifying the airplane as U.S. registered. That's far from necessary, since the lack of continuous letters in my identification number gives me away as an American. Contact is established immediately, and I state that I am on a flight itinerary, a much simpler visual flight process than a standard flight plan. With John as our responsible party, a flight itinerary is at least as much insurance for prompt search and rescue as a formal flight plan. If we don't check in with John via satellite phone on schedule, he'll promptly launch search and rescue through flight service. He tracks us with his own personal radar in and out of areas where radio communication is non-existent. I ask flight service for any available weather for Bella Bell and the status of the restricted area northeast of Port Hardy. There are no reports from Bella Bella, but the female voice offers two recent lighthouse reports in the area. The lighthouse weather looks good. Winds light, sea rippled. And the restricted area is not active. So we can cut the corner and join the airway that runs north from Port Hardy to Bella Bella. I push the seat back and settle into the remaining hour of cruise flight. Autopilot engaged and serenity in the cockpit. A seaplane checks in on the flight service frequency, a flight itinerary to the Queen Charlottes. A massive ridge of high pressure dominates the west coast in mid July. It is forecast to remain parked here for days. 
A mile below, isolated boats are tucked into inlets and extensive bays, far from the bustle of any city or town, enjoying their own solitude. From the water, the nearest sign of humanity is a tiny maroon and white airplane passing overhead. I doubt they even notice. Eighty miles up the electronic airway from Port Hardy VOR, I begin the descent for Bella Bella. We are 20 miles from the airport, so I click off the autopilot and push the nose down. The airspeed winds up, and I trim the airplane to accept the increased velocity. The stratus clouds below are broken, with lots of opportunities to weave between them as I descend. I ask Margie to rotate the fuel tank selector to the fullest tank for landing. I fly from the right seat, although everything is easily accessible from here, including the fuel selector. But the primary pilot position is on the left, so the selector is easier for Margie to, Margie to reach. As a flight instructor, I feel more comfortable in the right seat. Yoke in my right hand, throttle my left. It's my natural place. We drop in a wide spiral over Denny Island, inspecting the other Bella Bella airport as a prospective camping spot. It is more isolated than the primary airport on Campbell Island. The Denny Island runway is wide with no taxiway, typical of Canadian airports. The parking apron has no airplanes, with a lone truck near the trailer adjacent to the parking ramp. We survey the dirt road that runs from the end of the runway to the bay. You get a good preview of the terrain from 2,000 feet up, so we absorb as much of the detail as possible in preparation for foot travel once on the ground. It looks like an ideal camping spot. Now I point the nose at the more westward island and at the airport at Campbell Island. The runway is significantly uphill to the northwest, and the landing will be nearly directly into the wind. It should be a short uphill roll. We turn base leg for runway 31 over the town. I fly the approach while Margie surveys the road from the airport to the town and notes how to walk to the harbor. The pre-landing check is already complete, but I recite the final two item check aloud. Three green, prop full forward. The landing gear is down and locked and the propeller lever is set to maximum RPM in anticipation of a go-around. The wind on final approach is a slight left crosswind, so I offer a little left aileron and enough right rudder to keep aligned with the runway center line. The flare and touchdown are routine, a better landing than most, and the destination is typical of British Columbia. Supernatural. We hike down the road from the airport, a pleasant descent to the town on this relatively cool July day. We pass the dump, traditionally located adjacent to the airport, as is oftentimes the case at small U.S. airports. Airport crows get to do double duty in such environments. Boats sit in the open ground, on the open ground, on both sides of the road. Most are of metal construction, in sizes that range from small to huge. Some derelict, but most look healthy. A few of these boats are in the middle of vacant lots, while others sit adjacent to houses, usually flat on the ground without trailers. 
We pass a house with a small-scale basketball net abutting the paved road. On the other side of the road, another net stands ready at the neighbors for a complete game on the paved surface. It's a good thing there are few vehicles using this road. Go play in the road has a different meaning here. As we continue down the street into the heart of town, some houses sport hand-lettered signs advertising pop and ice cream and videos. The homes range from new with modern wood design to old and dilapidated. All have a gorgeous ocean view. Another private play area on the edge of the road has a small hockey net poised for action. Mom and Dad are currently enjoying a hockey shooting contest with their young daughter who can barely maneuver the full-size hockey stick. We walk through the middle of the hockey rink as the girl whacks the fluorescent orange puck as best she can. The puck wobbles weirdly, momentarily gets up on its side and rolls awkwardly towards the net. The shot is unblocked by the goalie dad as it rolls off the pavement into the goal. I can't resist cheering her on. She shoots! She scores! This must be universal terminology since Dad smiles proudly back at me. Both marinas are on top of our must-visit list. And we are not disappointed. Classic fishing boats geared for salmon are tucked everywhere at these working boat docks. Modern Honda outboards are the engine of popularity here, and the big four-stroke silver outboards look out of place in this environment, but they obviously do the job just fine. Many are mounted on flat-bottom metal boats that could haul a mighty big catch. Bella Bella is a First Nations reserve. From the government dock, we look across to Denny Island and an expansive new complex of subdued pastel buildings, pristine and vacant. Could it be an extensive resort here? I focus my binoculars on a string of edifices. In my mind, I equate what I see to a line of new townhouses. What are those buildings? I asked the sole man on the dock. He has just arrived and is arranging his fishing poles rig. New fisheries place, replies the fisherman, not pausing his concentration from setting up his line. It is an uninterested reply that I imagine is from a man who has seen the government spreading all around him. Pretty big for offices, I note. Is it housing for the fisheries workers too? Not open yet, he replies, big government thing. Jobs for Canadians, I remark. It's one of my favorite phrases. From my perspective, it seems that most government jobs in BC serve few purposes except creating their own jobs. I succeed by getting a faint laughing grunt from the fishermen. But not for us, says the man in a monotone. Acceptance is the only weapon that works in the continual local war with the government. Adjacent to the out-of-place symbol of government affluence are two old-looking, large, white industrial buildings, still standing strong and looking proud. They are separated from the new complex by a wide line of trees. 
What about those white buildings to the left, I ask? The old cannery, B.C. Packers. It's been closed a long time. There's another one up there that is still open sometimes. He sweeps his arm to the right. Not much canning these days. As always, the local taxi is the best way to learn about a town. But getting one is sometimes a challenge. The clerk in the native band store is glad to help, but her telephone calls are unanswered. No one is home, he says, offering no other alternative. Two teenagers are clowning around in the front of the store, and I boldly step towards the youths, although they seem reluctant to meet my gaze. Would you be interested in earning some money by taking us for a tour of the island? No car, says one of the boys. I feel bad that I asked. Part of the band store is set aside as a cafe, so we asked the waitress for suggestions. A taxi just picked up a dinner order, she says. I'll call him back. She dials a phone number, mumbles a few words, and hangs up. He's coming back for you. The timing is perfect. Within seconds, a red van pulls up in front of the store's entrance. An unmarked vehicle that parks audaciously like a taxi that has authority here. Can we hire you for a ride? I inquire into the open passenger window. The taxi driver is a rotund, smiling fellow who looks like he could tell a good story. Sure, where do you want to go? Eventually to the airport, but could you drive around the roads in the area first? Sure, that won't take long. Keep it under 100 miles, I joke as we slip aboard the back seat with our backpacks. Make it about two miles and we've seen it all, he laughs. This is a native town of 1,600 residents, an amazingly large population for a town of this geographic size. Many of the homes have extended families in the double digits. That's the RCMP building. 16 cops, says the taxi driver. That's one policeman for every 100 people. The cops have the best houses. The hospital workers, too. Want to see our bar? It's one of the biggest on the West Coast. The bar is closed, and it's not a very impressive-looking building, but it is big. Alcohol is allowed here, not a common characteristic for most native villages. Almost all of our population is native, says the taxi driver, except for the police, teachers, and hospital workers. But we have some half-breeds. There used to be an Air Force base on Denny Island. You'll find lots of red-haired and green-eyed mixed race around here. These days, Denny Island has 400 people scattered throughout the island with houses for lawyers, retired teachers, and others with wealth. The taxi driver has working experience coordinating with bands throughout the region, assisting them with organization of their community services and their finances. His primary job these days is driving heavy equipment. Most of the bands don't understand the importance of looking ahead, he says. Take garbage, for instance. Bears and cougars are starting to appear in the town. We've let the garbage dumps go too long. We pull through a nicely landscaped cul-de-sac homes for the cops. At the end of the road, a scraggly tan dog lays in the middle of a small turnaround area. The taxi pirouettes around the dog, not slowing in the least as we make our course reversal. I look out my side window as we pivot around the dog, missing him by a few inches. He continues to lie on the road with an eye on the van. He doesn't budge, 
and the cab driver doesn't even acknowledge its existence. I guess both dog and van are used to this mutual coexistence. Passing the school, we get a view of the adjacent nicely manicured new athletic field and the teachers' homes on the slope above. We continue on to the ferry dock, but don't get out of the van. It's a small dock that handles the traffic between Port Hardy and Prince Rupert. This is where we pack the salmon. Those pallets are where they ice them down. What about tourists, I ask? There's a lot of Pacific coastal activity at the airport, but I haven't seen any tourists. That's another area where the elders haven't kept up in notes. The airlines bring in the sport fishermen to our island, and the fishing resorts wait offshore in their boats to haul them away. You mean they just come in and take the tourists off the island as soon as they arrive? Yep. They make all the money and we get nothing. Boats are waiting out there right now. Tourist poaching at its best. Bella Bella doesn't even receive the spoils. As the author of the Upper Lake series, I thank you for listening to this podcast. And I invite you to uh, check out the recently overhauled Power River Books website at www.powriverbooks.com.